If you'll open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Continuing our series on the book of Romans, we'll be focusing our attention on verses 16 and 17 this morning. And these verses supply us with the the overarching theme of the book of Romans. We're going to read, starting in verse 8 through to verse 23. Paul writes, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also, Who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse." For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is the word of the Lord. The name God, Elohim, in the Old Testament Hebrew, describes God as the strong one, the almighty, the all-powerful. It's a basic characteristic of God himself. When you think of the power of God, what comes to mind? God working powerfully. I think of the creation of the world. God, out of nothing, nothing existing, God simply speaking, 
and things come into being. That is sheer, raw power. Our uh, shorter catechism talking about creation says God does it by the word of His power. Or maybe the ten great plagues that God demonstrated when He uh, removed His people forcibly from Egyptian bondage. Or maybe you think of Jesus, some of the great miracles that He did while He was on the earth. I can think of Him standing uh, in that tempestuous sea and simply verbally commanding the sea to be still, and then the response of the creation is complete obedience. The sea was still. That's power. That's remarkable. But here, in Romans 1, 16 and 17, Paul speaks of a demonstration of God's power that far outshines those that we just mentioned. It's the power of God on full display in the gospel of salvation. Let me remind you what he said. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. In God's demonstration of power in creation and in various miracles... He is demonstrating that power on things that are either non-existent or or neutral. He creates out of nothing. He speaks into being that which wasn't. He forms man out of the dust of the ground. He forms woman out of the side of man. He turns the Nile to blood. He parts the Red Sea. We talked about Jesus calming the ocean. Things that that are either non-existent or neutral. But in the gospel, he reveals his power in a far greater and more impressive way. In that he takes humans who are his enemies, who are not neutral. They are actively set against him. Who are rebellious who are hostile to Him. Morally and by nature turned against God. Look at verse 21 of chapter 1. For although they knew God, this is all human beings, although they knew God, we should have, we should have got this right. We should have understood just through the work of creation. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Romans 3.18 says, Of all men, both Jews and Greeks, there naturally there is no fear of God before their eyes. God does something in the gospel that makes those who are bent against Him, who despise Him, into those who willingly and joyfully bow their knee to Him and praise Him. 
That is power. That is glorious and impressive power. Something that outshines the power we see even in creation and miracles. That's the greatest miracle of them all. The Jews. Paul says this gospel is to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. The Jews, like Paul, a legalistic Pharisee. Someone who based his whole life around this this attempt to keep the law, to order his life so precisely according to the law of God that he could gain God's favor. He was a legalist. The gospel caused this man to consider all of his moral and spiritual works as rubbish, as trash. He wants to just throw them away and get rid of them. He only wants the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. That is impressive. God can take the most obstinate heart. And in fact, He loves to do that. He takes the greatest Pharisee and transforms him into the greatest apostle. The Greeks are described in verses 18 to 23 as idol worshipers. They've given up worshiping the true God and they're worshiping all of these aspects of creation. They're moral degenerates. Verses 24 to 27 describe how they they change the natural order of man and woman and begin to practice homosexual and lesbian acts. But you know what God does to even them? He causes them to give up that moral degeneracy. And to place those things aside. To give up those acts which they thought were good and healthy and right. They they convinced themselves that that was okay with God. They gave them all up. And they turned to the law of God and submitted themselves to the law of God. They gave up their idols and they turned to worshiping God. I want you to look around you. And you who are visiting with us. Look at this congregation. What you see in a group of people who give up their Sunday morning on Labor Day weekend to worship God is a demonstration of the power of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. You are not here without the power of God doing something great and extraordinary and miraculous in your lives. Because... Your natural inclination is not to seek after God. You remember the psalm? It's interesting how these things work out, Alan. Remember what Psalm 14 talks about? It's the same thing Paul uses in Romans 3. Turn to Romans 3. This is a description of all of us, both Jews and Greeks. Verse 9 of Romans 3, What then? Are we Jews any better off? The Jews thought they were better off because they were God's chosen people. No, Paul says, you're just as sinful as the Greeks. Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, Paul says. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. 
as it is written, none is righteous. No one, none understands. No one seeks after God. If you seek after God, if you understand what Christ has done for you, then the power of God is at work in your life. A miracle has happened. You were dead in your sins and trespasses, and you've been raised to new life in Christ Jesus. You need to give thanks to God. Gospel power dominates Paul's thinking in these two verses. And as we look at this, we're going to break it down very simply. We're going to look at the power of God in the first point and the righteousness of God in the second. Our first point, the power of God. Verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul has great pride in this message of the gospel that he is going to joyfully and freely explain to us throughout the book of Romans. Now, this letter, as we talked about last week, is written to a congregation that contains both Jewish Christians and Roman Christians, Greeks. But it's predominantly made up of Greeks. And um, the Romans, the Greek world, they prided themselves on learning. This is where some of the great philosophers of uh, the world have come from. People like Plato and Aristotle and the Stoic philosophers all came out of this group of people and this culture. The Greeks, they considered the gospel as something that was foolish Something to be ashamed of. Man, you you are followers of Christ. You must be some very weak and unintelligent people. That's how the Greeks thought. They've considered it weakness. Your Savior, Jesus, was a criminal. He failed. He died on a cross. That's who you champion? That's your leader? He died on a cross and and you want to claim him as as not just a, a religious leader, but wait a second, you Christians are saying that he is God? Hmm. Illogical. Foolish. What kind of message is this? They considered the gospel nonsense. The resurrection defies human logic. Wait, wait a second. You're saying Jesus died and then He rose again from the dead? That is, that is just crazy. Nobody, how do, you, how do you prove that? That seems so strange. A delusion of weak, supernatural religion. Paul learned this when he was preaching the gospel to the philosophers in Athens. Things were going along pretty smoothly until he started to talk about the resurrection. And that's when they started to laugh at him. Oh, here we go. Who is this guy? But to Paul and to all Christians, the message of the gospel is the power of God on full display. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 
chapter 1, Paul deals a lot with the, the view of the gospel being foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. But what does Paul say? The gospel is the what? The power of God. And listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross that God sent His Son and He died on a cross like a criminal, but He had a purpose in it. He was making atonement for our sins. He was taking our place. He was a substitute for us. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. And then turn to verses 22 and 24. To 24. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. The gospel is how God executes the power of salvation, the power to restore a broken relationship between human beings and their Creator. The power to transform our hearts from those who seek after idols, who uh, engage in all type of immorality, those who do not seek after God, into people who are heartbroken by their sins. People who long to order their lives around His law, not that they may gain something, but because they see the beauty of it and the wisdom of it. Paul experienced this power. And that's why he's so committed to it. His life is a demonstration of this power. And your life is too. So what is this power that he's speaking of? Paul uses this term power, or this this theme of power, the power of God, twice in Romans 1. He uses it as a reference to the work of creation in verse 20. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. So, the creation of the world is a demonstration of God's power. But then he also uses it in reference to the resurrection in Romans 1, verse 4. So, look there. Uh, We'll read 3 and 4. Concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared by the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So, there's two demonstrations of power. There's creation, and then there's Christ's resurrection that is a demonstration of the power of God. 
And I want us to, to we, it, it's obvious with creation, but let's, let's camp out a little bit on the resurrection. Why does it matter that Christ rose again from the dead for our salvation? Can't that just, I mean, why did Paul have to teach that to the Greek philosophers? They thought it was foolishness. It was unbelievable to them. Why does he persist on teaching that? Why do we have it in our creeds? Why, why is it so important? What about the resurrection? matters for my salvation. Well, it has to do with this power idea. We have this reference in, in Romans 1.4, but this is not the first time that the Bible has linked resurrection to the power of God. Turn with me to Matthew 22. Jesus is talking to a group of Jews called the Sadducees. And they were more influenced by the Greek culture and the Hellenistic world. They had bought into some of the teachings of the Greek philosophers. And there's one doctrine that they denied was real, was real and true. What doctrine do you think that might have been? The resurrection. They denied the resurrection. So they pose this question to try to trap Jesus. They say, well, what if a man is married to a woman and she dies and he marries her sister and she dies and he marries her other sister? Or um, let's see, maybe I've got that wrong. Maybe it's the the woman who marries the brothers. But it doesn't take away from the point I'm trying to make here. It just shows my biblical illiteracy. Um, They say to him, well, in the resurrection, whose husband will be hers in heaven. And I want you to notice what Jesus says. He knows what they're after. They're trying to deny the supernatural element of the resurrection. So Jesus knows this about them. And in verses 28 and 29, he says this. Or Here's their response. The Sadducees say, In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven brothers, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. And listen to Jesus' response. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage. The resurrection is the power of God, Jesus is saying. And you are foolish to deny that. Then turn to First to Second Corinthians thirteen, verse four. Listen to what Paul says. Second Corinthians chapter thirteen, verse four. About Jesus. For he was crucified in weakness. But lives, that's resurrection. He was raised, he lives by the power of God. He died in weakness, but His resurrection is a demonstration of the power of God. Now, now we talked about two themes, creation and resurrection. And I want to suggest to you that the Bible links those two. Creation is the power of God. The resurrection of Jesus is the recreation of human beings. The resurrection of Jesus is the second creative act of God. The saving creative act of God. 
Who are we in Christ Jesus? New creatures. Why? Because of the resurrection. This is why the resurrection matters. This is why we can't leave it out of our gospel. The gospel is not just the cross. It's the resurrection too. That's the power of God unto salvation. In the preaching of the gospel, God is doing a miracle of recreation. A powerful work connected to the Word. How did He create the world originally? He spoke and it happened. How does He recreate? Through the preaching of the gospel. Through the preaching, the spoken word, calling sinners to repent, to turn back to God, and to receive Jesus Christ as their only hope of salvation. In Romans chapter 10, verse 13, Paul makes this clear. He says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone who hears the gospel and responds by faith will be saved. But then he says this, How then will they call on Him whom they have not believed? And and how are they to believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So God uses the foolishness of weak men to preach His Word. And as they communicate to those who are called, the power of God recreates them. Here is Paul's Gospel very simply put. Jesus is God incarnate. He took on flesh in the Incarnation lived a perfect life, died on a cross, and rose from the dead. If you believe, if you believe these things about Jesus, then you, dead in your sins and trespasses, God-hating in your nature that you inherited from Adam, if you believe, then you too died with Christ on the cross And you have been raised through the power of God to new life. You have been raised with Christ. That's the gospel. You need to be able to think as a Christian and identify yourself with the great works of Christ. He lived a perfect life. So have I. I've lived a perfect life. I have kept all of God's law perfectly. He died on a cross. I died on a cross. He was buried. I was buried. He was raised from the dead. I am a new creation. Turn to Romans 6. If you can master this little diagram identifying ourselves in the gospel with Christ's perfect law-keeping in His life, His cross, His death, His burial, His resurrection, and apply those things to yourself, then you understand the gospel. Look at Romans 6, verse 3. 
And listen to what Paul says to you. Do you not know? He's saying, Christian, you should know this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What's true of Christ has application for us for our salvation. And let me just show you how this carries through in so much of what Paul says in all of his letters. What does he say to the Ephesians in chapter 2? You are dead in your sins and trespasses. You are dead in your sins and trespasses. But then in Ephesians 2.4 he says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in heavenly places. You're not participating in the old creation anymore, which was dead and fallen. You in Christ have been raised with Him. You are a new creation. That's pretty good news, isn't it? That's amazing. Look at what God has done for us. He's taken that which was dying and decaying and He has made it new. And the mechanism He uses is His Son, Jesus Christ. This is why Easter means something that's so sweet to us. But the second point, the righteousness of God. The power of God is revealed. And now He says, for in it also the righteousness of God is revealed. This is a second characteristic of God that Paul emphasizes here. He weighs heavy, or what weighs heavy on Paul's mind in this second verse is God's justice. God is a just and a holy God. He expects perfection out of His people. God is pure holiness. He regulates the the world with His law. The gospel is good news to the Jew first and the Greek because it reveals the bad news of God's judgment. The wrath of God is against all of us. But in the gospel, God provides a way for sinners to become righteous without doing anything, simply by believing. By faith, we become righteous. The righteousness of God here described is not a characteristic of God, but it's an act of God where He gives a legal status to us who are unrighteous and undeserving. The Gospel declares that God has acted through His Son to bring sinners into a right relationship with Him by changing our status from condemned sinners under His wrath to those who are innocent, righteous, pure, and acceptable in His sight. That's what Paul 
is talking about. Now, very briefly, how does he do that? Well, Jesus keeps the law for us. Look at Romans chapter 10. Actually, we're going to start with Romans 9, right at the end of Romans 9, 9.30. What we need to understand is that God is, through the gospel, making us something that by ourselves we're not. We are sinners. We deserve judgment. But the gospel gives us a mechanism, an avenue, by which and through which we can become Purely righteous in the sight of God. Listen to what Paul says, and, and this is what he's saying in, in the book of Romans, in, in Romans 9.30. Romans 9.30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles, now these are the, the idol worshipers and the sexually immoral, the, the, the ones that the Jews wouldn't even be around, they were so unholy. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness by the law, by being good. They weren't pursuing that. They were evil and wicked. But the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, they have attained it. They have become righteous. That is a righteousness that's by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, failed. They did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. This is what separates Christianity from every other world religion. You can never be good enough for God. That's what Jesus is saying. You are wicked, evil, bad people. And this is why Christianity is unpopular, because we don't want to accept that. You are ungodly. But God sent His Son to make you godly. God sent His Son to make you righteous. And the Gentiles pick up on that and say, wait a minute, this is special. You mean it's not about what I've done, it's about what He's done for me? Then look at chapter 10, verse 4, or verse 3. Speaking of the Jews, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God, that's the same language He uses in verse 17 of chapter 1. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. If you believe in Jesus, you have completed the requirements of the law. That's what Paul's saying. Through Him and by Him. And then also relating to His justice, He takes the penalty for breaking the law on the cross. That's the whole cross thing. This is why Jesus comes and dies. The wrath of God that we deserve is poured out on Him. And we identify with Him by faith. If you put your trust in Him, He will do these works of saving grace for you. What we need to do is believe. Believe. 
I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Verse 17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, The righteous shall live by faith. We're about to take part in the Lord's Supper. And that is a sign and a symbol of our identification with Christ, our union with Christ. When you eat this supper today, I want you to believe two things. Two things that are true in the eyes of God about you. You need to believe that you are a new creation. You died to sin, the old man, and you have been raised to new life with Christ. And the second thing, you are righteous in the eyes of God. You are pure and holy in His sight because you didn't seek your own righteousness, but you sought sought the righteousness of God that is imputed to you by faith in Jesus Christ.